Well, grab a seat and grab your Bibles, and tonight we're going to continue through the Psalms. If this is your um, first time joining us, we're convicted here to teach through the Bible verse by verse, um, and we are currently st- um, going through the book of Psalms. So we are on pace to do about 10 a night. We're going to slow, or 10 a week. We're going to slow down a little bit this week. Um, Tim actually is just feeling a little bit under the weather, but I was texting him, and he, he says that he's, he is feeling better, so we're thankful for that. But um, if you could just keep praying for him um, as he recovers, and um, I'm sure that he'll be back with us Sunday. But all that being said, tonight we pick up and um, Psalm 21. So we'll be in Psalm 21, and we'll see how far we get either to about Psalm 24 or Psalm 25, Lord willing. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you, um, if you haven't signed up, there's a sign-up sheet in the back for the men's retreat and also for the women's retreat. That is quickly, quickly coming. I know that it's a month away, but um, a month goes by like that. So make sure that you can sign up um, there, and all the details are also back there. If you came in tonight and if you forgot your Bible, um, raise your hand, and we have one in the back that we can um, give to you. We want to make sure that you can follow along with us. Everyone there? Awesome. So just as a just to level set again, um, remember that the Psalms, we know that Jesus actually spoke about the Psalms when he was on the road to Emmaus. And remember as he was talking after um, his death and his resurrection, remember he was walking with the, the two men on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke Um, 24, in verse 44, Jesus said this, and it said, uh, Then he, he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, These are are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And so Jesus there is telling us that um, as he was explaining Um, the whole Old Testament to these two men that he was walking with. He specifically pointed out, um, we know that the entirety of the Bible points to Jesus, but there um, Jesus calls out the Psalms, they speak of me. And so one of the things that um, we are trying to emphasize as we go through the Psalms is to see Christ in the Psalms, to see Christ in in the pictures, in the shadows. And man, tonight will we really see him as we look at... um, Psalm 22, and as we look at Psalm 23, the, the great shepherd. But all that being said, we pick it up tonight in Psalm 21. So there we see Psalm 21, um, a, psalm of, um, a psalm of David. In verse 1, it says, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice! You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. With your hand, excuse me, verse 8, your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. 
You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, in verse 12, he says, You make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string towards their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength, and we will sing and praise your power. So Psalm 21 um, is directly connected to where we left off last week in Psalm 20. And if you have a title, um, a study Bible, if your Bible has titles above the Psalms, if you glance back to Psalm 20, you'll see there that um, Psalm 20 talks about the assurance of God's saving work. So really, Psalm 21 is King David's response to his prayer for God to save him, his prayer for God to deliver him in Psalm 20. And just a key summary, if you look at verse uh, 7 in in Psalm 20, this is one of my favorite verses. Um, There's a song that goes along with this, Psalm 20, verse 7. I'm not going to sing it because then you won't want to learn it because I cannot sing Um, but ask Olivia, she can sing it for you. It's verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And and that kind of summarizes what David's cry of his heart was in Psalm 20. Lord, I need saving. I'm not going to trust in man's power. He's not going to trust in horsepower that the tanks have, right? He's not going to trust in the schemes of of whatever uh, the, the best that man can offer. But Lord, we're going to trust you. And so David was crying out, looking for God, and and asking God to deliver him in Psalm 20. Psalm 21 that we just read is his response from God's answered prayer. So notice in verse 1, we see two things. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall we rejoice. So two things there that King David says. He says, Lord, we're going to... Um, we're going to have the joy in your strength, first of all. And then we're going to rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you have saved, that you have delivered, that you have done this, Father. And notice, too, this is, again, King David saying this. The deliverance, the victory of the mighty king, King David, yet he says, Lord, I know that this wasn't me. I know that it wasn't my hand who delivered. It wasn't by my wisdom. It wasn't by my strength, Lord. This was you. It was your strength. And Lord, I'm going to joy. I'm going to rejoice in your salvation, in your strength, what you have done. done. And we see that that's the humility of David, isn't it? Not taking credit for it, not wanting others to see, but writing this song, penning this, that others would see and know that it was God who delivered him. That strength, that deliverance is found in the Lord. And isn't that what our lives should be? Man, that people don't see us, that they don't see that we are mighty. That, but as God works in and through us, we can be honest about our weaknesses. We can be honest about our struggles. And then we can be honest in, in sharing that it's the Lord who has worked through us. It is the Lord who has brought us through. That others would see him and glory in him. But... But he says in verse 3 that you meet, for you meet him with the blessing 
of goodness. Notice there, isn't this the grace of God? It says, David's saying that, Lord, you're the one who has met me with blessings of goodness. The Lord doesn't ask us or he doesn't um, hold out his goodness or his blessing in front of us and say, you can have this if you can catch me. You can, you can, be, you can experience blessing if, if you're good enough, right? But he has come and he has met us with his goodness. How sweet is that? Man, the mercy of God. And we see that ultimately in Christ, right? On the cross. We know, we just sang it, that Jesus came down and he has met us with, with blessing. But in verses 8 through 12 here, I'm sorry, yeah, 8 through 12, we see he describes um, the defeat over the enemy. So, it, it, right, he's crying now, again, continue that work, come and defeat the enemies that are against me. And if you look um, in verse 12 there, he specifically says um, one of his weapons, and he mentions arrows. And so for you who study the Bible, this should ring um, a bell. Arrows is mentioned in Psalm 127. And if you go and if you look in Psalm 127 there, arrows are referred to as children, the heritage, right? That, that children are a blessing or heritage, as the Bible specifically says, from the Lord, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And the idea is that a child in the hand of you, a parent of us, that, that we string them, right? And we direct them, and, and the Lord um, uses them to fight his battles. But connect the dots here through all of this. So we know who is the offspring, who is the son of God? Jesus, right? Where has... Who has defeated the enemy? Jesus, the Son of God. He's our King. And see, it's through Jesus we have salvation. It's through Jesus we have power. We have the strength of God because it is, it is Jesus who demonstrated, right, his um, holiness and raising again from the dead on the third day. Right? Death could not hold him. And notice, if you jump back a little bit, I know that we went out of order, but I wanted to pull this all together. In verse 5, he says, His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed in him. And if you're, if you're tracking with us on Sunday mornings, this verse should sound familiar. And if not, that's okay. I'm going to read it to you. But in John 17, in John 17, verses 1 through 3, listen to what Jesus says there. It says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that you, excuse me, that they may know you, the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, again, what did the psalmist, what did David um, pen there? Back in Psalm 21, he was saying in verse 5, his glory is great in your salvation. And Jesus just said that as he goes to the cross, Lord, Father, glorify me that you might be glorified. All of this, again, we know that deliverance is found in Christ um, but how sweet that is. And notice the result of what Jesus has done leads us to verse 6. 
of Psalm 21, where there we read, For you have made him most blessed forever, and and you have made him exceedingly glad with the new car. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you have made him exceedingly uh, blessed with a wife, or the perfect job, or, or a certain looks, or health. But he says, you have made him blessed with your presence. See, true joy, what our hearts desire, when, when we push away all the other things, is the presence of God. That's where satisfaction alone is found. We think, especially in America, we think that it's if we have the um, new TV or, or if we had this much money or, or if all of our circumstances would be fine, then we would have joy. But no, the Bible teaches us that joy is found when we are in the presence of God because we have been reconciled, we have been forgiven. And now we're back in his presence. Psalm 16, we've already, we had read this last week. Psalm 1611 says this. Uh, you will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So where are we looking for joy? Where are you looking for joy? Is it somewhere other than God's presence? Right? And, and you know that it was in the garden that when sin entered in, then um, they were banished from the presence of God. But it was in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it was there in the garden where Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he was arrested, and he went to the cross that we might again come back where the Bible ends in a garden, back into fellowship with God. So, Finishing it out here in verse 13, we see, Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength, and we will sing and praise your power. So, the weak, notice, the weak are made strong in his strength, and in that, like we've been talking, the Lord is glorified. So, do our lives, do we live lives of praise for God's um, glory? Is God's salvation evident in our life? Or do we minimize sin? Do we minimize failings? Do we try to put on um, a, a certain reputation or, or to keep up a certain strength to the world around us? And it takes away from the glory of God and who he is. Man, let God's glory shine forth as he works in and through us. And um, he can reach just through our weak lives. And then people look to him, not to us. So Psalm 21. Moving on to Psalm 22. Actually, uh, we'll kind of summarize. We'll, we'll do a little. They, the next three Psalms go together. So Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. They're a trilogy. And if you read ahead, you would know that these three Psalms are a tril- trilogy speaking of the shepherd or a shepherd. Now you know this. And, and um in the book of John, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, right? So again, like we know, we're Jesus in the Psalms. But specifically here, in 22, 23, and 24, we see the shepherd. We see Christ. And it's interesting, if you divide them up, they can be uh, looked at this way. In Psalm 22, we see the saving shepherd. In Psalm 23, we see the great shepherd. In Psalm 24, we see the chief or the, or the sovereign shepherd. Like the chief, the, 
the, the shepherd above all shepherds. We can break it down again and kind of look at it a different way. In Psalm 22, we can look back at the shepherd's work at the cross. In Psalm 23, we can see the shepherd guiding us presently. And then in Psalm 24, we see the shepherd coming back for us in the future and taking us back to uh, glory with him. Interesting, isn't it? So Psalm, Psalm 22, um, let's look at this, the saving shepherd. And many of you know Psalm 22. Um, and, and if you don't remember it, that's okay, because it will ring a bell as soon as we start to read it. But in verses 1 through 21, we see, it, you can break this Psalm, Psalm 22, into two sections. The first half, verses 1 through 21, is the suffering victim on the altar of the sacrifice. So the, here we're going to see Christ, again, our, our saving shepherd, on this, the altar, bearing our sins on the cross. And then the second half of the Psalms, uh, this Psalm, verses 22 through 31, is the joy of the victor. So verse 1, we see, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season, and I am not silent. So one thing I, I, I mistakenly skipped over here, if, if you have a title um, of the psalm, it says, To the chief musician, musician set to the deer, or deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. So that deer of the dawn, um, if you look what that actually means, it means the dawning of the day. The dawning of the day. And isn't it interesting, um, we know the context, right? Again, when Jesus quoted this, and we'll talk about it, was on the cross, which was one of the darkest days. Man, when our Savior bore our sins, and yet it's that dark day that brought, has brought a dawning day for us who were in darkness. And it was because it was on that day that we were translated, as Colossians tells us, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But in verse 1, we see the agony of sin. As, as we're reading through this first section, really look at this. This is Jesus. This is as um, the, uh, he's bearing our sins upon himself, and, and we hear him crying in agony. We see the despair of his heart. And yet, that's the reality of sin. And so don't downplay that as we're looking at these verses. But verse 1, Jesus quotes in Matthew 27, verse 46. That was when Christ was on the cross. He, he, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, up to that point in, in, in the life of Christ, he never experienced separation from God's presence. Think about it. Jesus never knew what it was like to not be in fellowship with God. He was perfect, in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship with God. And as Jesus was even in, in the garden, as, and as he was on the cross, Jesus wasn't freaked out. He wasn't concerned about the pain of the nails being driven through his hands or, or the whippings, the scourgings that his back would endure. He wasn't concerned about the spear that would go in his side. But what freaked Jesus out? That, that the fact that he would be out of fellowship with God. That he would be separated from his presence. 
And yet, I know in my life it's completely backwards a lot of times, isn't it? Where don't let the pain come. Where don't let that thing, whatever it may be. Of course, we don't want that. But if I were, I, I don't, do I weigh that more, or more than the reality of sin and being out of fellowship with God? See, Christ, he, he was <laughs> freaked out at, at experiencing that. And he asked there, in verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And we know the why. See, David writing this in whatever circumstance was going on in his, his life, he, he felt some type of separation, and he's asking, he's asking why Jesus, right? Asking why, but we know the why. It's so that you and I would be forgiven, that you and I could be reconciled back to the Father, that we would be made his, the righteous, given the righteousness of Christ. And it was the, the wise, because he was taking our sin upon himself. And what a why that is. Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus, he's saying, Lord, why have you abandoned me? Or in other words, we can think about it this way. Why are you hiding your face from me? Lord, why can't I, what's happened? I can't experience your presence anymore. See, but the reality is that Jesus experienced being forsaken by God that we who know and have been separated from his presence may never have to worry about being forsaken again. Isn't that cool? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because he's died and it is in his grace that we are made righteous in him that now when you place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8 tells us that, right? Not principalities, not angels, not sin, not death. There's nothing. We never have to be concerned. We, we will never have to cry that out um, in reality of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin was the sin, the only thing that can separate us from God has been uh, that has been paid for once and all. Jesus said it was finished, not it was started. So he experienced that for us. In verse three, he says, "But you are holy, enthroned in the praise of Israel." There he's describing the greatness of God. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So notice this, Jesus and David, the psalmist, as they're writing here, um, they fall back on what they know about God. Lord, I don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening? Why are you forsaking me, David, right? In whatever circumstance that he's in. But then he quickly says, but I know this. I know that you are holy. God, I know that you won't do anything that is wrong. Even though my heart maybe feels a different way, I know that truth. And I know that you are great. And he looks back and he remembers God's past deliverance. They trusted and you delivered. They cried and you delivered. They trusted and they were not ashamed by looking to you, Lord. So the psalmist here, David, right, he's being raw and honest with the word. I'm struggling with this why. But then he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He goes back to what he knows. And, and you've probably heard it before, but don't ever 
sacrifice what you don't know on the altar for what you do know. I had it backwards. Don't ever sacrifice what you do know on the altar of what you don't know, right? And God doesn't promise, promise to give us a, a peace that comes from understanding that is, but that is beyond human understanding. So just hold on to that, right? Because we all have the times in life where we ask why. We all feel forsaken, but we can hold on to the truth about who God is, his character. Verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, and they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in God. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So there even um, the, the verbal mocking that Christ experienced on the cross, right? But notice this in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm. Notice how this points to Christ. The great I am humbled himself. And he became a man. But here even describing lower than a man, a, a worm living among the earth. We see his humility. His humility demonstrated here. Now, one pastor points out this for the, uh, around the word worm. That, that word uh, can be, should be translated um, in, in Hebrew as tolath. And, and that's the same, same word tolath or, or worm here where it's translated if you see scarlet in the Old Testament. It's the same word. And, and because what would happen at that time um, in that region, see, that's how they got the red or the scarlet dye. Whenever they would dye clothes, or that, that's what they used is this, this, uh, this uh, dye that would come from, from this worm. Because this worm would reproduce, what would happen is it would go and it would attach itself to the limb of a tree. And there, in giving birth to others, it would die while attached to the limb of, of the tree. And then the babies, right, lovingly, after uh, the, the mom died, the mom worm died and gave birth, the babies would eat its carcass. They were hungry. And then what happened is that there would be this red scarlet that was left on the tree in place of where that worm's body was. And about three to four days later, that if that, scarlet, if that red scarlet wasn't taken and used for dye, what would happen is it would dry up and it would turn white and then flake off. But do you see how that points to Christ? Right? The worm who humbled himself attached to a tree. And it was in his death that, that life, we were born again. That we were given life. And the result of his life that we partake of. See, we're white now as scarlet, the Bible says. Though our, skin, sorry, though our sins were as scarlet, we're made white as snow. How awesome is that? Seeing Christ in all of this. But he goes on in verse 9, he says, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You have made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So there again, he's looking at God's past help, God's past deliverance. Uh, verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They, they gape at me with their mouths, 
like a raging and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of, out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred. And my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So here again, um, this sounds very familiar. We know that Jesus referred to many of these verses. But the bulls here, many believe, um, refer to the religious leaders that were around Jesus, accusing him at that time. And they had much strength, and they were just, in a sense, running him over, right, with their words, with their accusations, with the lies that they brought against him. And that's what bulls do. do. They're strong, and they just uh, stampede, trample over. But we see that Jesus, he says that he was poured out. There's no strength left in him. He referenced here, did you notice his, his joints were dislocated, limbs dislocated? There was a reference there, his heart being poured out like wax. The ruptured heart that Jesus experienced. Remember when they put the, so, the spear into his side? What, when they pulled it out, it says that blood and water came out. And medically, we know that that water is because literally the heart bursting. There's this dryness, his... his, his uh, tongue was clinging to his jaw. But yet in all this, in verse 17, he says, I can count all my bones. And Jesus would say that because none of his bones were broken. And remember, as the guard, the Roman guards were coming, and they, they saw that the um, two other men on the cross to the left and to the right of Jesus were still alive, they were, they, they I don't know what they took. I was going to say baseball bat. It wasn't a baseball bat. But they took, they took some piece of wood, right? And they were just going to whack their shins. Can you, I can't even imagine what that would be like, that, that they couldn't push themselves up anymore. But when they came to Jesus, they noticed that he was already dead and they put the spear in his side like we talked about and they didn't break his bones. And you see, that's because in Exodus... In Exodus 12, 46, it says that the Passover lamb, lamb was not to have any bones that were broken. And Jesus being our Passover lamb, see, he had to fulfill that requirement. And none of his bones were broken. But he references that there. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. For my strength, hasten to help me, deliver me, from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me, and I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor poured the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the, in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world, verse 27, shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families 
of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nation. Isn't that interesting? Verse 27 there, as we, uh, he, he references the end of the, of the world, praising and remembering the Lord. And that's what Jesus said, right? He, he died, he so loved the world that whosoever, whosoever should, would turn to him and repent and trust in him might be saved. And that purpose, it was not um, begrudgingly, but in Hebrews 12, 12 too, it says that the world that you and I were, was the joy that was set before him as he, as he went to the cross. It was you. Verse 29, all the purposes of the, or excuse me, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. All a posterity shall serve him, and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation, and they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will, not, who will be born, that he has done this. And notice there's the psalm ends that we, what are we to do is that we're to share. We are called to share what Jesus has done. Share with others. Share with the next generation. And it might be the next generation physically of, of, of kids. Of course that. Man, and we are thankful for you who serve here at the church and, and share with the next generation. But that's a call to you parents to share with the next generation. That's a call to um, whether you have kids or not to share with the next generation of Christians, those who might be saved. Man, we're not to keep this to ourselves. The mighty work of Christ, our saving shepherd. Psalm 23, here we see the great shepherd, or our guiding shepherd, if we were to look as, in it as perspective for today. Um, if you like, would like to uh, look for a book, I'd recommend grabbing this book. We have it downstairs on the Resource Center. I don't know how much it costs, but it's not a lot because we sell everything at cost. We don't make money on anything. But this is a shepherd's look at Psalm 23. I've never read it, but I've talked to my wife who read it, and she says that it's amazing. And I was picking her brain last night on uh, just Psalm 23. But it would encourage you, grab this book, um, a short book. It's an easy read. Um, it's downstairs. But Psalm 23, as we look at, um, can, continuing here on the shepherd, Notice in verse 1, we see that this is a psalm of David again. And, and you know David was a shepherd by trade. Before he was king, remember that he was in the field taking care of his father's sheep. He was, he was a shepherd. So no doubt he knew this personally. He experienced this. And I love that we, you and I, that we know and we can experience Christ as our shepherd. That's what Jesus... That's what, excuse me, David starts off in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. So for those of you who are in Christ, if you're saved, how sweet it is to know that God, the Lord, is your shepherd personally. Yes, he's our shepherd uh, corporally here as a church body, but also you personally. He is your shepherd. And so what, as we break this down, as we look at it, think about this is to you. And, and this is to me, personally. It's easy to think that it's true for that person over there. But sometimes it's hard to remember that this is true of, of you. And we referenced this earlier, but John 10, 11 is where Jesus said there that I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life 
for his sheep. So here we see now the good shepherd describing his relationship with us. So because he is good, because he is our shepherd, this is the result. So in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Notice, number 1, we sh- I shall not want. So, of course, we know that um, the Bible promises that, he, that the Lord will provide for all of our needs. Philippians 4.19. Right? We have that promise. We'll have no lack. God will provide our needs. Now, the Lord can use our physical needs. Do you ever consider this? To drive us to a place of looking to him that we might seek help for our real need. See, when everything's fine and dandy, my life tends to go on cruise control. Have you ever noticed that? Right? I I, I don't press into the Lord. I'm trusting in myself. I'm not praying as, as I might whenever things are difficult and hard. But God, even knowing our, we just think of needs only in terms of maybe the physical need of the money or the healing or, or the direction. And certainly those are needs. But sometimes God can use those needs to really get to the heart of deeper needs, of pride in my life, of self-reliance, of, of self-righteousness. And use this, the outward circumstances that he can touch and work within our hearts. He produces a greater dependency upon him. And think about that. That's what, that's what Israel learned as they went through the wilderness. And the manna came, right? They had to be dependent upon him day by day. And yet we know, because at the end of all of this, we shall not want, because like we referenced earlier, at the end of the day, we think that it's just food we want, I think when I have that huge owls, extra large owls cone zone blizzard, that I'll be satisfied, but then I eat it and then I'm just dissatisfied because now I'm in discomfort. But really what my heart was desiring is just to be with the Lord. And see, at the end of the day, we shall not want because we want and desire the Lord himself. And he's made that possible. In verse Two, he says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. So here, notice, he, he describes lying down or laying down or, or rest, pleasure. The idea there is a dwelling place. We can, we, there's a place that we dwell with him or we're at home with him. We're at ease when you're at home. You, you're safe, aren't you? And see, our good shepherd causes us just to be at ease because we know that and we're in his presence. He's watching over us. He'll provide for us physically and, and ultimately we're at rest because Christ has finished the work. There's no more striving. I don't have to worry about being good enough. I don't have to do more good things to try to earn my way to God, right? Right? We're saved by grace through the finished work of Christ. So there's rest there. And he says that um, he leads us besides the still, beside the still waters, the idea of, of just a peace, a refreshment. Have you ever been um, or, or kind of looked at the Monongahela when it floods in the spring? I remember one year it came up um, and my parents have a house on the river. And man, there was docks going down the river. There was whole trees. There was boats being, getting carried down the river. And it's not peaceful. <laughs> It's scary. 
And so the still waters is that place of, of, of rest, of, of peace. But you might ask yourself, right, well, if this is my shepherd, then why isn't my life looking like this? Why don't I feel at rest? Why am I not at ease? Why is my life in turmoil? See, because beyond like we've been looking at, beyond the outward circumstances, God doesn't say that that's where he promises us the rest, but he promises us, promises us to, to give us rest in the midst of those circumstances. Knowing that he will deliver us, knowing that he will keep us, knowing that we're just passing through. Beyond just what we see, beyond our understanding, we're at peace. Again, ultimately, like Romans 5 tells us, because we've been forgiven. In verse 3 there, we read, He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. The idea of restoring our soul, he puts our mind and our emotions um, back to what they should be. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. No, do you know that God is right? He is righteous. He will only do what is right. Sometimes we don't think something is right, but because God is righteous, you can trust that his leading will only take you in right places. What he deems, what he knows is right. Fall back on his attributes. Verse 4, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So here he describes um, a, a valley. And, and in this valley, it's described as the shadow of death. And so this even is representative of the, the low places, the low points of life where, where there's shadows, right? When, when we're not on the mountaintops of, of life, we all go through, through valleys. Notice too, if, if you're in a shadow, what, what, what causes the shadow? There's something blocking the sun, right? And we know, notice that in all of this, death is not present, but it's the shadows of death, the shadow of it. And, and even for us, no, again, think about this practically. As you and I, as, as we're walking through and, and we have these temporary tents, right? We're just passing through. We're sojourners on the earth. We know that this isn't our home. Sometimes we might spend long periods of times in the valley of the shadow of death. But for us, we know that it is but a shadow. Why? Because remember when Jesus was on the cross? Remember when he said it is finished and he gave up the ghost? Do you remember what happened next? It was there on the cross as, he's, as, as he says it's finished that we know that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And it says there that the, there was a period of darkness over the earth for three years. The, the, the earth, it just went dark. And again, that was the reality of Jesus taking our sin upon himself and experiencing the darkness of, that we deserve because of sin. And we are but in the shadow of death because Jesus went to the dark place in bearing our sins for us. See, and that's why we're just passing through. And did you notice, and I never really noticed this, you probably have um, until I was studying, but he says that we're just walking through this valley of the shadow of death. See, right now for this 80 years, for this 100 years, however long you and I may live, that's our walk. But when 
we die, we know that we will be in his presence. And what does the Bible tell us in Revelation? That in heaven, in his presence, there's no need for a sun. There's no need for a moon because there is no darkness. Isn't that sweet to even see just this valley? We know that this is but a shadow. It's not the real thing. We're not going to remain here. So take courage tonight. Man, if you're in a valley, if you feel like you're in darkness, this is just temporary. Hold on. We have hope in Christ. He says there that I will not fear. Even though he's in this valley, there's no reason to fear in it. For you are with me. See, God's presence drives away fear. It drives away fear. His rod, we see, and his staff, notice they comfort me. So two specific things. The rod is used for correction. If a shepherd's rod would be used for correction. If sheep would go astray, if they would continually wander off, the shepherd in love, do you know what they would do? Is that They would go to the sheep and they would break the sheep's legs so they couldn't keep wandering off. And then, that seems pretty harsh though. The, the shepherd would then take the sheep though and put him on his back and carry him for five weeks or so, however long it takes for that bone to heal. And notice as there's that intimacy now. Although they, they may be wounded in correction, there's now a closeness and they, they get to literally be on the shepherd, being carried by him. And see, the rod, we know, that, that, that speaks of the correction in our lives. See, God always refers to the rod when he would correct his, his children, Israel. And, and as a child or a son or a daughter of God, God corrects you and I because he loves us. Sometimes that mean, might mean a leg being broken or a jaw being broken or whatever that is. It's not punitive, but it's in love to correct us so that maybe we would, the heart of the Father is, is that we wouldn't keep wandering off, isn't it? But the rod described there. And isn't it interesting there that he also says that it's his rod that comforts him. See, sometimes we get upset. Well, Lord, if you're correcting me this way, why would you do that? That's not fair. But really, I think when we're, on the, when we're in his presence, right, for eternity, we'll be comforted by that correction that we received. Man, I'll be so thankful, Lord, for you doing that because I was such a fool. I was literally a dumb sheep. Okay, I got to ask this question. I don't, I, would, I couldn't show this video. I didn't know if Tim would be upset with me if I showed this video. But have you seen, I'm not on Facebook, but my wife shows me every, all the funny things on Facebook. Did you ever see, did you see that uh, video of the sheep recently? And I don't know, I don't know where it was, but it's like this trench that's maybe this wide. And all you see at the beginning of the video, they, this little boy's pulling this sheep out of, out of the trench. Right? And as soon as it hits the ground, the sheep like, is hopping, hopping, and it maybe takes, goes like 30 feet, and it jumps real high up in the air, and it goes back down in the trunch. And that's me. I'm dumb sometimes. See, in God's correction in our life is comforting. And it's comforting to know because, see, God's correction in your life is affirmation of his love for you. It's, it's, um, it's a conviction. It's, it's um, proof positive that you are his son. That you are his daughter. You don't correct other people's kids. You correct your kids. God corrects you because you're his. So let that, his correction and his conviction be comfort for you. But he also says 
his staff. Staff there is used for protection, to beat off the predators. And notice the Lord comforts, excuse me, the Lord protects us. But that's comforting too, noting, knowing that God is protecting you, that God is fighting for you, that God is watching over you. You know, when Britt gets scared, he runs to me because I'm bigger than him, right? He comes to me for comfort, for protection, or his mom or whoever it is that he comes to someone bigger than him. That's who our father is, our shepherd is to us and to protect us. Verse five, he says that you prepare a, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And where's that? We know the table that God has prepared for us. Jesus said, right? It was at, it was at the Passover, the last supper there where he prepared a table and he took the bread and he broke it and he, and he took the cup and he said, Take, drink, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. See, for us, even in the presence of our enemies here, right, we still um, live in this flesh, our bodies. He has prepared a table for us. You can go, for you Bible students, here's a great devotional tonight or tomorrow morning. Go read Mephibosheth and when, when uh, he was carried to the table. You'll be blessed by that. You anoint my head with oil. See, what shepherds would do is they would take oil and they would put it on the head's uh, of the sheep, and it had a twofold purpose. It would keep the bugs from getting into their ears and their, and their brains. Can you imagine that? So it was protective that way. And then it was also protective because sometimes sheep butt heads. They pound heads together. And you know what happens is that when there would be the oil, instead of just the friction and getting caught, when you put oil on, it's, it starts to slip, right? And it's a lubricant. So what's that look like for us today? Well, we know that oil is always a picture um, of the Holy Spirit. See, and, G and the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit to protect us, right? From, from the enemy, from the, the things that start to bug us. And we have the Holy Spirit to remind us, to, to, to help us. And then also, too, the Holy Spirit, because let's be honest, some of us butt heads with each other. No one here in this room, right? We never butt heads. Um... But they're, they're the sheep butt heads. Sometimes we do that. But God's given us his spirit to even to work through those things and to keep us in, in love, right? So really cool picture there. He says, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love that God's goodness and God's mercy will follow you and I all of our days. Isn't it sweet to know that God's goodness follows you? We can run from his goodness, but he, it follows us. He follows us. His mercy, not getting what we deserve, follows us. All of our days, and, and here even he finishes out with confidence, and I circled this in my Bible, where he says, I will. See, that's confidence. He knows this. I will dwell in God's house the house of the Lord forever. I'm not there now. I'm still in the valley of the shadow of death. But this I know. I, I will be in his house forevermore. Psalm 24, the chief or the sovereign shepherd. So this is looking forward to um, Christ coming back for us. Verse 1, the, uh, again, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So notice here, the earth, he says, is the Lord's. All that's within it, all that's within the earth, 
belongs and is God's. Now, it might seem contradictory because we know that for now, Satan has the title deed to the earth. But it's temporary. Right? That ju- that's just for this season. Satan is still has to report to the Lord. Job, t- We know that because of Job. You can go and read that. But the Lord has rightful claim to all who live in the earth. Verse 2 describes that ownership of all that he has created. Then jumping down to verse 3, who, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? So who may stand before the Lord? So again, he, this is established by his kingdom. Who may go into his presence? Because he is, the earth is his, because all that, belong, that, all that is in the earth belongs to his. Who can go to, into the king's presence? That's the idea there. See, we don't have a king. We have a president here in our country. But you can't just march into the White House. If you jump the fence, right, you'll probably have a few German shepherds and um, you might just be shot by a sniper. I, I don't know. Don't try it. Um, but you, no, no one can just go into, into the king's presence. But the question for us is how can we go before the Lord? How can I go before the king? Verse 4 tells us, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. See, here we learn about who the Lord is. This is who he allows in his presence. Clean hands describes purity of action, no defilement, a clean heart, pure in motive, right? Within, beyond just the outward. And notice, isn't this comforting that the Lord is concerned about what is right? He doesn't say who, the person who is, uh, has the most riches, who looks the nicest, who, who is the smartest can come into my presence, but he who is clean, he who is upright, both within and without. And we know that, of course, apart from Christ, that's none of us. But because of Christ, that's you and I. Because he is pure. He is upright. He is undefiled. So verse 5 he shall receive he shall receive blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation this is the this is jacob the generation of those who seek him who seek your face say la so here when he any time that he refers to or the bible refers to jacob that's israel right we know who israel is but jacob was known who's who, the name that he was given when he was born which means hill snatcher or or the one who d- deceived so notice here god made a covenant with us not when we were perfect when we were still jacobs christ came and he died for us that's when he made a covenant with us verse 7 lift up your heads o you gates and be lifted up you everlasting doors The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, lift up you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So here we see that when the king would enter the city, right? um, Those, they would yell out as he's coming. Open the gates. The king is coming. Let him in. Open the gates. He's coming. And this, this psalm, we know like from um, history, if, if you go back and from the rabbinical writings, this psalm was actually written 
uh, excuse me, this psalm would be one of the psalms that were read. Um, there are certain psalms that they read each day of the week. And this psalm was written on Sunday. Now think fast forward. It was, it was on Palm Sunday that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And they would be singing this. Open up, you gates. Open up, the King of glory. The King is here. Not knowing that it, the King was there. That Jesus had come. As he entered in. He entered in to go and prepare to be the, the, um, go to the cross. But yet too, how sweet it is that even for us, man, if you've never accepted Christ, tonight the Holy Spirit is saying to you, open up, open up the gates of your heart. The King is here. Remember Jesus uh, says in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he's waiting for you to open the doors of your heart to him, that he may come and dwell and enter in and live with you. But it's emphasized twice. Some say that that's because the first time, the first uh, call of the gates to open up is when Jesus ascended into heaven after the cross. And the second time represents when Je it will be said again when Jesus goes back into the presence after he has come for his church again. Interesting thought, isn't it? But all that to be said, um, Christ in the Psalms. See, take comfort tonight. I, I don't know where, where you are, where you may be, just in your walk, um, in, in life in general. But, man, if you're just struggling with sin or condemnation, our saving shepherd, he has defeated sin. And it's in him we, we have salvation, strength. And even, even just as we're here, right, um, walking throughout this daily, our, our lives and, and navigating, we're, we're walking through the valleys of the shadow of death. Know that God is with you. Yeah, not maybe physically, right, standing next to you, but even closer than physically, he's dwelling within you because he's given you his spirit. You have the Holy Spirit with you. And man, what hope you have that one day, man, we're going to be going back into uh, the presence of God. What will it be like on that day just to be um, uh, with Jesus and hear, hear them call out on that day, man, open up the gates. The king is here. And what hope that is for us, even today. And so, Father, we thank you for these realities. Lord, we thank you um, that we can look to your word and Lord, be, just be confident, Lord. We know that one not, not one um, jot, not one um, tittle of your word will, will pass away, Lord, but all will be fulfilled. And Lord, teach us to trust you in that. Lord, teach us to be ones who, who not just are hearers of the word, but Lord, then go and apply these truths to our lives, Lord. Not that um, we would be great, not that others would see us and say, um, what a look at that person and in whatever may, way it may be, that, but that we can just say, man, this is our shepherd. Man, come and follow him. So Lord, would you bless each of, each of us here tonight? Lord, and would you give us opportunities to share these truths? Or tonight, if it's on the way home, or if it's tomorrow and at school or the workplace or with family, Lord. And so we just ask this expectantly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.